study this morning. We've been, um, we've been going through a set of items from, um, from the beginning until now, and uh, these items reflect uh, an ad that we, uh, we put in the paper. Pastor Frank told me that I had to preach expositionally, which, uh, well, topically more than anything else, and going through a, uh, a particular series of different topics. It's always harder to do than, um, than to actually go verse by verse through a book. Um, but it's been a wonderful blessing. We'll, uh, we'll do a small summary of that next week. This week's topic was started last week, and it's how then shall we live? That's the topic. Alan did a, a really, really good job last week of introducing uh, that topic, and it was a wonderful blessing to us. Uh, before we get into it, let's, uh, let's bow our hearts in prayer and ask the Lord to bless this, this time together. Father, what a wonderful joy it is, dear Lord, to know you, to know the wonderful truth of your scriptures, and that those scriptures, dear Lord, can inspire within us eternal life, but also, dear Lord, it inspires within us joy, a joy, dear Lord, that is unspeakable, a joy, dear Father, that we can have and that we can impart to those that are around us, but a joy, dear Father, that is particular to those who are in Christ. We ask, dear Father, that you would bless this time with each one of us together, that you would illuminate our eyes, that we may indeed be able to see the wonderful glory of God. We thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Um, Alan had this. I got really excited when I asked him to preach and, and mention to him about the, the topic or the study that we're going into. And he was in Phillip Island, not Phillip Island, he was in uh, Port Ferry at the time. And, um, and he said to me, I've got a great one for it already. And it's called Living in the Until. How then shall we live? We are living in the until. And it was an awesome topic because um, it's the temporary time that we, that we dwell. We dwell until the Lord come in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, until our gathering together unto him in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 until the harvest where there will be a separation of the tares from the wheat in Matthew chapter 13, until the times of restitution of all things in Acts chapter 3, until the redemption of the purchased possession in Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 1, and until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in in Romans chapter 11, and also until the words of God shall be fulfilled in Revelation chapter 17. So this is the period of time that we're living in. But you notice that each one of those things, they're eschatological. What does that mean? It means they're, they're speaking about the times of the end. And that's their context. They're speaking about the last days. We are living until that last day, that, time, that day when we're going to be with the Lord, that the Lord returns and sets all things right. So... A particular interest to me that I related to was, uh, was, was hope, you know, and that's found in our passage this morning, but a hope that is found only in Christ and a hope that is obtained by two things. It's obtained by faith and it's obtained by certainty because there's two aspects to this that we still have that hope in, and I'll explain that. Alan introduced only that related to faith last week. Um, it's that we, um, 
We're going to expand on that this morning, but, it, but it's that which relates to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we meet the Lord together in the air. This is something that we believe by faith, because this is where the Bible presents it. But there is also that which we still have hope in something that's a certainty. The second aspect to that is, um, which relates to certainty, is death. And, uh, and that we're going to be talking about next week. Now, don't get too sombre about it, okay? It is going to be an exciting topic to discuss. But it's the one certainty that we all experience. And don't get me wrong, both things are certain. Both things are certain. We know that the Bible teaches certainly that the Lord will be returning and we'll be meeting the Lord in the air. But we have to accept that by faith. Why? Because we don't see it yet. Okay, so that which is of faith is not yet seen. That which is hoped for is not yet seen, otherwise we wouldn't be hoping for it. Okay, but we already live with the knowledge of death. We know that everybody who lives dies, you know, so we understand that that's a certainty. But what we're going to be showing, even within this passage, is that that too is a hope for those who are in Christ. So it's really, uh, it is an exciting topic to be able to go through. Um, hope of the Lord's return and our gathering together unto Him, uh, one which we accept by faith in what the Bible says, and the other through death, where death, we are told in 1 Corinthians, is swallowed up in victory. Uh, death isn't something that we believe will occur by faith, but it's a certainty. Um, it's exciting to know that one way or another we have hope in life and we have hope in death. So it doesn't matter what occurs to those who are born of the Lord. We have hope in life and hope in death. Terry, Terry Dixon, I, most of you know him at, uh, at Faith Baptist Church. I remember a lot of years ago he was telling me about the story of his, um, I think it's a triple or quadruple bypass surgery that he had on his heart. It was a massive operation that he had on his, on his heart. And the nurse sort of wanted to comfort him. And she said to him, you know, you know, it'll be okay. Everything will be okay. And he tells me that he said to her, I know everything will be okay because when I open my eyes, I will either see the face of my saviour or the face of my wife, you know. And wow, what an incredible hope to know that regardless of whether we live or die, we have this glorious hope. And that was a wonderful picture of what, of what Terry experienced and what he told me. So, but our time this morning is only one of those. And we're going to be speaking about the blessed hope. Um, we're not going to be dealing too much with the first 12 chapters of, um, of chapter 4. But we are going to be touching on a couple of those that are after that until the end. Um, so if you turn back to, if you've if you got your Bibles there, turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be spending most of our time in the study of, um, of that passage. Trying to find a spot where these lights aren't reflecting on my... There you go. I'm back here. All right. Okay. So, in this first part here, in, um, in verse 12, he, he's speaking to us about how you ought to walk, how you ought to walk to please God. Um, hang on. My apologies. Where are we? 
Yeah, sorry, in, in, in verse 1. So I'll just, I'll just r- really quickly run through this, this section of it. So he speaks about from verse 1 how you ought to walk to please God. Uh, we notice that it's the purpose that we would abound more and more, he says, that we would abound. The Lord's purpose for us is never for our lack or for our deficiency, but always for our abundance. That's God's purpose for us, for our abundance. So notice carefully that he addresses the brethren also in the plural form. He says, how ye ought to walk and to please God, and that ye would abound more and more. This letter is addressed um, specifically to the Thessalonians, but it affects all the brethren. It's in plural form, and we understand that ye, you, your, yours is the plural form that we find in the authorised version of the Bible. Then he goes on and he speaks about this in verse, in verse 3. He speaks about the will of God and deals with abstaining from fornication. Okay, again, it's a very specific word with a very specific meaning. Now, the vast majority of modern translations today have changed this to sexual immorality um, or sexual sin. Um, but what is sexual immorality? What is sexual sin? What specifically is it? We know that these things are changing over time. When it's speaking about morality, it's speaking about the mores of the people, something that people have generally accepted and agreed to, whether it's for it to be moral or immoral. But those things continue to change. They continue to change. Abortion itself was once illegal and immoral. It was believed to be the murder of a person. Today, it's considered a choice without any moral conviction. It's considered as a choice. Um, Homosexuality was illegal not 20 years ago. It was actually illegal. Today, it's thought of as a natural and harmless alternative. A recent report by Johns Hopkins University, if you guys don't know about this, you really need to get a hand on this report because it's incredible. Um, It's turned so much of the LBGTQI group of people... um, in, a, in Fura, they are so upset about this report. This is a prestigious university in the United States and it speaks about with all clarity that this is not natural, that this is not genetic, that it's not something, but it is actually very, very harmful and it's an incredible report and you can download it on PDF, um, thenewatlantis.com. Um, if you need to know a little bit more about it, I'll let you know at the end of the, the service. But it's a, uh, an incredible study, and it was only published in August this, this, year, this year, so last month. But God is really, really specific when it comes to dealing with fornication, ensuring that there is no obscurity in what he means. And Paul here addresses an activity that even Christians would succumb to. Okay? Webster's Dictionary simply defines fornication as sex outside of marriage. That's, that's it. It's simple. It's clear. It's easy to understand. God is really specific when he's dealing with something and he uses specific words. If you want to obscure it, obscure it with immorality. You know, so many things are immoral today, you know, um, and it's, it's all changed. It's all changed. So Paul notes that fornication is to be abstained from in verse 3 and that we should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honour and not to behave in the same lust of those who don't know God, in verse 5. Then he speaks about something else in verse 6. He commands that we, that we not defraud one another. 
Um, God himself also is the one who will avenge all those who are defrauded. I could speak at quite some time on this because I've been so often defrauded being in in business. Um, But it's important to know that as men turn away from God, they turn ignorant to the judgment that will come against them by the one who knows the secrets of men's hearts. The one who here says he will avenge. He will avenge such. Imagine driving your car all your life and you completely ignore all the limits that are put on you. You completely ignore the road laws and uh, you break the speed limit whenever you feel like it. You'll run through traffic lights whenever you feel like it. Um, But you never actually get a fine once it actually happens. Okay? But the law is that, and the law knows when you've broken those, those laws. Now, this entire time, you're feeling quite comfortable with yourself. You can do whatever you like, not knowing that the law is going to catch up with you in the end. Imagine when it catches up with you in the end. And this is the same thing. Men have lost their way. They've lost the whole idea of judgment. They've lost the entire thought that God will avenge such. They don't think that these things will come back upon them. And there will be a, a, a wrath with respect to this. Then he speaks about brotherly love in the next, in the next verse. He speaks, against, he speaks about that brotherly love in verse 9 and being taught of God who has himself demonstrated that complete love as a sacrificial love and dying for those who are his enemies. And this is the love that we are to emulate. This is, this is the love that we are to emulate toward one another. And this is the love capable of loving even our own, even our own enemies. In verse 11, he speaks against slothfulness. He says, do your own business and to work with your own hands. Now, this doesn't denigrate being employed, okay? A lot of people, when they read this, they think about you need to own your own company. You need to be in your own business. But this doesn't actually refer specifically to that. It speaks to all areas of our service. So even though I've had my own business for many, many years, you have to understand that I still serve an employer. I still serve someone who remunerates me for that service. It basically speaks about being gainfully employed, about being gainfully employed. He says, and for the, for the purpose of it, that ye may walk honestly toward them that are without, and that ye may have lack of nothing, in verse 12. So those that are without are those in the world. So it speaks about those who are, that are without, it speaks about those that are in the world, not, not those that are in Christ. We walk honestly because we work and have no risk of stealing goods to fill our lack. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. So to the brethren there is a simple command against sloth. Um, In 2 Thessalonians, it's interesting because he actually says, If any would not work, neither should he eat. I can tell you something seriously, nothing puts a stop to unemployment than famine, okay? When you're hungry, you eat, you work in order to eat. So now we come to our passage, our passage from verse 13. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, 
that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. The first point is that we have a united hope. It's a united hope that we have. In verse 17a, he says, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. In verse 13, Paul speaks about those who are asleep. Um, It's an idiom used in Scripture for all those who have died in Christ. Jesus was the first one there that's actually used that particular idiom. He speaks about Lazarus. Remember that? When he spoke about Lazarus and he said, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. But even the disciples were a little bit confused about this, so it's not unusual that we might be, because they said, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. But howbeit Jesus spake of his death, and speaking about that in John 11, those who die in Christ, those who die saved in Christ, the scripture always refers to them as those who sleep. We sleep in Christ. And that, that's who Paul's talking about here. But he says, um, he speaks about them and he's telling them about their sorrow. Paul addresses those who have sorrowed, but these have deeply sorrowed, believing that those that they love have missed that which they have so longed for. Uh, the promised coming of the Lord to meet him in the air. And this sorrow is clearly misplaced. Paul notes about it saying, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. You know, there's a great difference between the sorrow of those who have no hope and the sorrow of those who do. In the next verse, Paul explains it in verse 14. He says, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Brethren, the greatest sorrow that people undergo is the sorrow of loss of a loved one. And this is, this is such a deep, deep sorrow. And it often takes us unprepared. It really does. There are very few people who die that aren't making plans for tomorrow. So it's exactly the same thing for us. We sorrow when those who we love are taken from us. And it literally knocks the wind out of our sails in so many ways. And and many of us have experienced that, especially when something's come up suddenly. When something's come up suddenly. Um, I remember a number of years ago when when a a, a couple at church, um, Emma was, you, you know them, Emma, and she was married to Colin at the time. And she was married to him in November. And in January, we had the phone call saying that Colin had just died in a motorcycle accident. Mate, I literally fell to the floor like my legs buckled under me. I was so stunned by it and so shocked by it. And it's a sorrow. But we also know that Colin knew the Lord. So our sorrow was difficult to explain because the sorrow was for Emma, you know, and what she must be going through. 
but also it knocked the wind out of our sails because we're going to miss that individual until we see him again. But for the world, for those who have no hope, the sorrow is far, far different because they have no knowledge whether or not they will ever see that individual again. And because of that, they find themselves using different um, things to uh, sort of cover over that sorrow. They, they will use different expressions to try and lighten the sorrow. Uh, things like, well, you know, at least he had a good innings, you know, or, um, you know, he lived a, lived a good life and uh, at least he died peacefully in his sleep. Um, uh, that he or she is, is up there and watching over us at the moment. Ideas that they cannot base on anything that's true. These are ideas that they use to somehow cover over that genuine and realised sorrow within their own hearts, you know. Um, you'll use the, 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 the common epitaph, RIP. You see that on so many people's tombstones. That's not for the person that's dead. That's for the people that are living. And the hope that at death they are resting in peace. But they don't have a basis. They don't have a foundation for believing this. This is only wishful thinking. And they don't want to hear anything of the contrary. So these are those who sorrow, who have no hope. You know, my mum died eight, about eight years ago now. And I remember sharing the gospel with her. She had the, basically the sentence of death was put upon her with, with, with cancer. And, you know, in one way, when people have cancer who know not the Lord, is an opportunity at that point. It's an opportunity to know that their life is going to be cut shorter and that they are aware of it. So to me, in one way, to those who know not God, it's a blessing. I know it sounds strange to say it, but if those who suffer with cancer, who know not the Lord, now have an opportunity to think more about their mortality. Isn't it interesting how as we live our lives, we know that everybody else will die, but not us. We live as though we're immortal, even though they might die, but we won't. We seem to live that way. We don't have the thought of death or mortality within our minds. Well, that's something we'll talk a bit more about next week. But I remember begging my mum, I remember being on my knees to her, asking her to believe the gospel telling her to not comfort herself that she may see others who know not God in hell. Because the Bible speaks about hell as that place which is absolute solitude and absolute darkness and absolute torment. It is the exact opposite of heaven. The exact opposite of heaven. Where heaven we have fellowship with the saints in glory and joy and peace and honour, glorifying the Lord, glorying one with another, having fellowship with angels. In hell, it's the exact opposite. It's complete solitude, complete darkness. Heaven is light. Where does that light come from? It comes from the Lord, you know. It also emanates from those who are born again, who are saved, believe it or not. We will shine as lights in the firmament of the heaven, the Bible says. But the Bible speaks about death in hell as the exact opposite. Absolute darkness, a darkness so dark it can be felt. It can literally be felt. 
And yes, it speaks about fire and it speaks about... It's completely opposite. And so you can understand me begging my mum to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were certain things that happened in her life at a young age where it given me the impression that maybe she had received the Lord when she was very young, about 16 years of age. Uh, but she had terribly strayed from the knowledge of Christ. Anyway... We were away on a vacation at the time. Mum was already in palliative care and my sister had called me to, to tell me that um, you know, she could die any moment. She's really slipping and slipping very, very fast. So we made our way from the west coast and, and, we, and we drove as quickly as we could and we went straight to the hospital and she died as I crossed the threshold in her room. All I wanted was just a, just a hint, just a hint to know whether she knew Christ, just that maybe the Lord would give me that comfort that, you know, I could see maybe something in her eyes. I gave her a Bible and she had underlined a few things and that gave me a glimmer of hope. But, you know, I didn't have any genuine hope that I would see her again. And, uh, and, and her dying, immediately, as I, literally as I opened the door, my sister said she saw her chest rise up and down and once, once I walked into the room it stopped and that was the end of it. So I don't know whether I'm going to see my mum again. I don't know. I'll be honest with you, I know that she can only be in one of two places. You know, she can only be in one of two places. And whatever place that she is in is exactly where she is to be, you know. There's a strong indication in Scripture that those who are in hell know that that is exactly where they deserve to be. But those who are in heaven know that that is exactly not the place where they deserve to be, you know. Each one of us who have inherited eternal life, once we're in heaven, we know that we don't deserve it. Our conscience being fully informed. So those who sorrow as if they have no hope, that's that sorrow. But we don't sorrow that way. See, we sorrow in a different way. You know, in a very different way, because to us there is hope. And it's a hope that we will be united. It says in verse 15, he says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So there's a body of Christians who will remain unto the coming of the Lord. These Christians might be those of us today who are in Christ we might indeed be that generation who will not pass until the coming of the Lord. It could be us. It could very well be us. It might be the next generations. For every generation since the time of Paul had been anticipating this blessed hope. Note that the end of the text, it says, shall not prevent them which are asleep. The word prevent is a compound word. It actually speaks about going before, pre Vent, before, pre, before, vent means to go. And it's generally been used that way throughout English history. I, I've got the Oxford English uh, Dictionary, which is a massive dictionary. It's uh, 20 volumes, actually, the proper OED. And it actually gives you the, the history of those words and all the quotes that come from them. And right up until the 1850s, it had been almost universally used as going before. Prevent actually makes sense. Uh, it only came later on that it meant to hinder. And this is not what it's used here. It's not used that way throughout all of 
the Bible that we have it. It's always used as go before. So when you're reading the Bible and you see that word, now you've got a bit of an understanding of what that word actually means. You know, um, you know King David uses it, many people use it in Scripture. So it doesn't mean to hinder, but can be read, shall not go before them which are asleep, shall not prevent them which are asleep. So Paul says that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. In other words, we will not go before them. Those who are asleep in Christ and who remain alive, both have with them a united hope of being caught up um, and will meet the Lord in the air and ever be with the Lord. The second point is a reunited hope, a reunited hope. And it's that passage in verse 17 where we meet the Lord in the air. Because he says here in verse 16, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Both the dead in Christ and those that remain have a united hope. You know, we've got that, um, the united hope is in the return of Christ and being caught up to meet him. And here we have that, that gathering together, this, this reunited hope that we have. And that's one of the joys that we have. You see, even when you lose someone, and that's what Paul's talking about here, because you see the Thessalonians at this particular point in time had lost loved ones. And they had an idea that those that have died before the coming of the Lord are perished. But Paul was trying to comfort them. He was trying to say, no, no, that's, that's, not, that's not right. Those that have died in the Lord, will, we will not prevent them. We will all be caught up together with the Lord in the air. Okay, so you can comfort one another. That's why he's told to comfort one another with those words. So those that die in Christ and we will be reunited with the Lord. The word caught up is that word that we always refer to as the rapture. You understand? You've heard of the rapture. The rapture, the word rapture is a Latin word, okay? It is the Latin word of the Greek word arpazzo. Arpazzo is the word that means to be caught up. And it's not... It's not the first time it's used here, you know. The first time I was looking at this, I think, rapture, this is a really strange idea. We're going to be caught up? I mean, are we going to be literally seeing Christians flying through the air? Well, no, I'll explain that to you in a moment. But I couldn't understand it until I realised that that's actually used a number of times in Scripture. It's used with respect to um, Philip. You know, Philip was caught away by the Spirit of the Lord from the Ethiopian. Remember when he came in Acts chapter 8 and he went to the, the Spirit of the Lord, brought him there, and, and the word caught away is also a form of arpazo. It's the same Greek word, caught away. Paul speaks about it being caught up to the third heaven. It's the same word, caught up into paradise. It's exactly the same word again. Jesus spoke about giving eternal life to those that are his sheep. Remember, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. He says, and no man can pluck them out of my hand. That pluck them is the same word. It's literally to be forcefully taken away. Okay, and that's exactly what this is referring to here. And then we can speak about it. I thought about, all right, has this ever happened before? I mean, actually happened? Caught away, caught up, plucked away. Yeah, got that. I can see the text. But where do we see it actually happening before? Oh, we have it happening before. 
We have it happening before. We had that happening with Enoch. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God and God took him. God took him. Taken away. He was 300 years of age when he was taken away. You know that wonderful story that we speak about um, and we use these little quizzes in the, in the camps and uh, we say, all right, who was the oldest man in the Bible? And uh, some intelligent person that's been reading his Bible will say, it's Methuselah. And I said, yeah, and yet he died before his father. I'm like, he's the oldest man in the Bible and he died before his father. Huh? And not realising that his father was Enoch. He never died. Right? He was taken. He was taken by the Lord. He was caught up by the Lord. This is that blessed hope. And we also have the same thing with Elijah. And we often, uh, we still joke as a family sometimes if we've got a spare chair there and we say, oh, who's that for? It's for Elijah. Elijah's coming, waiting for Elijah. You know, why? Because the Jews do that. Israel, the, the Jews do that. They sit around their table. They always have a spare chair because they're expecting Elijah to come. You know? That's why when they asked the, um, the disciple, John, disciple, when they asked John the Baptist, who art thou? Art thou Elijah? That's why they were asking him that question. What does the Bible say about him? Do you remember? He came in the spirit of Elijah. He actually came in the spirit of Elijah. How exciting, you know, and wonderful to see. See, to us Christians, this is the blessed hope. And this is what we look forward to. We look forward to it in anticipation. But the world will look to it in trepidation. The world will look to it in trepidation. To the world, this is a foreboding. This is an uneasiness. They will look to it in anxiety and in fear, and so they should. Those who listen to this, who are not the Lord's, should take no comfort to the coming of the Lord. Because the coming of the Lord, where he'll be coming for his own, and after that will be followed by the greatest upheaval that the world has ever known. Now, we don't know the timing with respect to that. We don't know if... This taking up, catching up of the church is going to be immediately followed by that tribulation period. We can presume that there will be a preparation time in between. And we can presume that because it was also anticipated by Paul in the Blessed Hope. It was anticipated from the very first century that this might be occurring. Okay? And that's why Paul actually argued against one, one lot of brethren who weren't even working. They're sitting on the hilltop twiddling their thumbs and the Lord's going to come soon, why do I need to work? You know? And I'm pretty sure some of them loaded up their debts pretty high as well. Hey, you know, I'll, I'll borrow money, borrow money, borrow money because when the Lord comes, it's not my problem anymore. You know? You think that's wise? I don't think that's wise. You know? Grouse idea if you could figure out exactly when he was coming. But we had no idea and I think the Lord was wise in making sure that he and he alone, not even an angel from heaven... And not the son, while he was on the earth, knew. Only he alone knew and knows at that time. We know that there is that time. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians. If you're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, flip over a couple of pages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In the first verse, in the first verse, it gives you a little bit of an indication because the Lord speaks about the signs of the times and here you can actually see a little bit of a struggle that the brethren, the same brethren that he sent the first letter to, he's now sending this second letter to. In verse 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, 
that ye be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. We don't know exactly when Paul was with them, but we know that when he was with the churches and he was beginning these churches, he would spend a considerable amount of time with them. And he was expounding unto them the doctrines of Christ, the doctrines of the Word of God, and we can see the doctrines of last things. Remember not. Why were they worried? Why were they concerned? They thought that the day of Christ had come. The day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of our God, it's referring to the same period, this period of tribulation that will come upon the earth. It's also known as the times of Jacob's trouble. Okay? They were worried about it. Why? Because of the immense persecution at the time. And they had worried that the day of the Lord had come and they'd actually missed the rapture. When you're like that, then come into the church and you only see clothes falling down there and there's nobody here. Happened to us when we were, well, not quite the same, we were over at Faith Baptist Church and we walked in there and we didn't know that that actually changed rooms. So we had the big hall, a big basketball hall, but they'd actually shifted and gone into the, the, the school building, the primary school. And we walked in, we had a look, these chairs, this pulpit, there's everything there and no one's here. What's going on? Right. <laughs> well, this is a bit freaky. We walked outside, had a look around, and we saw a small sign, and someone said, oh, we're in here. Oh, so we walked in there, and, and I'd only just started at the church over there. And I thought, oh, thank God you guys are here. I thought we'd missed the rapture. <laughs> and uh, so it was funny at the time. But not funny if you do. Definitely not funny if you do. Okay, it's a really, really difficult, difficult time. But for those who will meet the Lord in the air, it will be a reunited hope, a reunited hope as we are gathered together unto him. But know also that this same event, this same event is considered as a mystery by Paul. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. So go back a few books. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is an incredible chapter because it also speaks about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks about that which has been passed on to him that he now shares with others. But he also says something fascinating in verse 51. He begins at verse 51 and it gives you a little bit of a picture. What I want you to take out of this passage that we're going to be reading is those interesting links that we see coming up. We've got a few interesting links between 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. There's some interesting phrases in there and it helps you link those two together. And he says this in verse 51. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labour is not in vain in the Lord, there's going to be a change. There's going to be a change. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the word moment in the Greek refers to the atom, atome. It's, a, it's the smallest fraction of time. Somebody has actually expressed it this way, the twinkling of an eye actually mentioned about the speed of light that actually crosses over the pupil of the eye. That's how fast we are going to be changed. And there has to be a change because this mortal needs to be put on immortality. This corruption, the Bible refers to our own flesh as corruption, must put on incorruption. At that time, we will be received with new bodies, a new nature, a new state. And therewith, the Bible actually gives us a really interesting explanation of what that body is going to look like. And to give you a hint, it speaks about the difference between the seed planted in the ground, this is the corruptible, seed planted in the ground is the corruptible, and the tree that blooms from that seed is that incorruption. And that is the glory between us now and the glory that shall be revealed. What a change. What a change. I can't even imagine what that change is, you know. So, third point is that we have an everlasting hope. Verse 17 finishes with that everlasting hope, saying, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, chapter 4. <clears throat> Nothing will change this time for us. We spoke of eternity in the first two messages preached, and this is one side of eternity where we will ever be with the Lord. This is what we're looking forward to. This is when all our work on earth is done. We look to those words of the Lord who might indeed say to many of us, well done, my good and faithful servant. You see, while we are here in this tabernacle, in this, in this body, we glorify God and share the truth concerning him. We live godly in Christ Jesus. We offer to the poor our gifts, to the widow our help to the children our wisdom, to the thirsty drink, to the prisoner hope. This is what we do and we do this in the name of Jesus Christ. This is what we do. This is our work that needs to abound. This is what we do. We don't live for ourselves. We live for others. Our time here is not for us. Our time here now is to live for others, that they might abound in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might have the hope that we have, that they might share in the joy that we share. That's how we are to live. We are to live for others, not for ourselves. The time we are here is short and it's certainly a vapour and not slowly does it pass away, so how then shall we live? We live knowing the hope that is set before us. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. This follows the incredible faith chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. And it links in those things 
that all the men of faith, the people of faith that have gone before, how they have lived their lives. They didn't live to themselves. They lived for God. They lived for God and for God alone, you know. And if we're living for God, then we are not living for ourselves. We are living for Him and His purpose. Chapter 12 and verse 1. He says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Brethren, no matter the trials that you endure, no matter the struggles that you go through, are going through, will go through, no matter the different sufferings that might be there, know for a certainty that the Lord had suffered more. The Lord had suffered more. There was a preacher that I read about recently who was really, really upset and really um, sad about his own congregation. He was starting to find there was antagonism against him and against his preaching. And he went and consoled himself with a brother in the Lord. And he said, I'm really upset because there are people arguing against me and there are people abusing me and there are people doing this and that. And he said to him, his friend said to him, have they... Have they spat in your face? And he goes, well, no, no, they haven't, they haven't spat in my face. He goes, hmm. have they pulled you by the beard and actually plucked off the hair off your face? Did that happen? And he goes, no, no, that didn't happen either. And he goes, did they get a crown of thorns and, and press it into your cranium? And just at that point, he realised what this brother was saying. Now, these things that happen unto the Lord. These things that happen unto the Lord. So whatever your trials are that you're going through, the Bible says that he was marred more than any man. Your trials are nothing compared to the ones that the Lord has endured and gone through. But it says here that it was for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Excruciating pain, the word, a Latin word that actually means of the cross. That's where it comes from, the word excruciate. We haven't endured anything like that. We haven't even struggled to blood with respect to our sin, the Bible says. We don't even struggle that way. The Bible says that our Lord was a man who suffered more, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief was he. So enjoy your time with joy, sharing the love of God and be not occupied in mind over the affairs of, of this world, knowing that all things will turn worse and worse until his day. Then, for a thousand years, we will see how his righteous government will reign. What a contrast that's going to be. I mean, that's one thing that I'm looking forward to because he's coming to show the contrast between a righteous government with a righteous king that he began to work with through 
the first king of Israel, as a picture of righteousness to the world. Then David as a picture of righteousness to the world. And then Solomon as a picture of peace unto the world. But that fell apart. Even though God was directly involved in these men's lives. And now we have the world governing for itself. Not desiring God anymore, not wanting God in the picture, not wanting God to reign and rule. The world will reign. Matter of fact, we've got the worst form of government. That which is governed by the people. We call it a democracy. The Bible could just as easily refer to it as eventually anarchy. Because that is exactly what it's going to come to. Because democracy eventually falls away to the lowest common denominator with respect to, uh, if you're going to vote for me, the only way you're going to vote for me is if I essentially pay you for those votes. So I will give you this, 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 this and this. So we are, we are governed by mob rule. But then there will be a theocracy. And one that will have the governor of the entire universe on his throne for a thousand years. And we will see even with the righteous government for a millennia, will men will have years as the age of a tree. That even at the end of that, men will rebel against the Holy One of Israel. Men will still rebel. We understand that we have an everlasting hope. We live today, we will be rewarded with a reward not corrupted, not stolen, and that withers not away. Our treasure is in heaven, is everlasting. And we will not be there one moment before we realise how every moment on earth matters in eternity. Ever thought of that? That's an incredible thing to think about, that every moment on earth has a direct correlation with that which is in eternity. We don't think about that now. Imagine yourself for a moment living your life, you've finished living your life, now it's the end. Okay? Now it's the end. Now you're in heaven. You're going to be there forever, for all eternity. Does anything that you have left behind on earth now matter? You know, only the things that have done for an eternal benefit matter. The Bible speaks about gold and silver and precious stones. Those things will last. Everything else will be burned away by fire. I, I think about that and I think, you know, what am I sometimes wasting my time doing? when I could be doing more and more for the Lord that I will be able to store up in heaven, that which will never leave me. Final point, a comforting hope. A passage finishes with these words, wherefore comfort one another with these words. This is the comfort that Paul is referring to, where both those who are dead in Christ and those who are yet alive will have hope. They will be comforted. And it's comfort we need in times like these. When we think that we should live in hope, yet to know that we may also die in hope. For we know that our Redeemer liveth, and he shall stand in that latter day upon the earth. And so in my flesh I shall see God. These are the words of who? Who spoke those words? Job spoke those words. Imagine speaking those words and yet suffering the way Job suffered. You know, I haven't suffered like he did. I don't think there's many of us here that have suffered like he did. Yet this is what he says. And his faith so strong in the Lord, trusting in the Lord, and even saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Imagine having that hope and that joy. 
So not, even as those that have no hope. Don't sorrow that way. Comfort one another with these words. And we comfort one another with the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of his return and to watch and wait. And we do so in anticipation. We do so occupying till he comes. We do so knowing that there will be an ingathering of his harvest, drawing those who wait for the coming of their saviour with oil in their lamps, trimmed and ready for the master's use. That's what we want to be, trimmed and ready for the master's use. But in this passage, the Lord has clearly shown that these are words of comfort. What are the words of comfort? The words of comfort are that those who yet sleep in Christ and those who remain until he comes have hope. We have hope in life and also in death. And this is our joy. These scripture references are interesting. He says that whether we live, we live unto the Lord. And whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. Romans 14, verse 8. And what comfort is it to know that all things work together for good to them that love God? Romans 8, 28. And what joy it is to know that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 18, uh, Romans 8, 18. And what blessing is it to know that even weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. What a wonderful blessing this is. And what a hope that we can have as we live. So let me ask you this morning, do you think that rather than abound, you will be shortchanged in living for God? Do you think that you know better of matters for yourself? Do you think that comfort and hope comes from what this messed up world has to offer? Then why are we living that way? Why do we so often live that way? Why do we live as if the promises of the Lord don't apply to us? We're filling our hearts with too many things that the world promises. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Do you not remember that this was the fall of mankind? The very fall of man was precipitated by that very act. And yet we who are in Christ still act that way from time to time. Will we make that decision? Will we give our all to Christ? Will we give our all as our reasonable sacrifice unto the Lord? Let me close with this. Paul tells us in Ephesians, See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We need to walk in this world with our eyes open, walking circumspectly. Circumspect is an interesting word because it means walking with our eyes open to everything that is going on around us. Not ignorant, not following our own desires and our own lusts. We can be such navel gazers at times. We need to look up, we need to look up, we need to look around and we need to praise the Lord. My desire for you is that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. 
but that you abound in the Lord, knowing that now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. And that's our joy. That's what we've got to look forward to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful blessing. We thank you for your spirit doing his work within our lives. And we ask and pray, dear Father, you would help us to be good governors, dear Father, of that which you have given us to live through and live in and live with. We pray, dear Lord, that we would glorify your name in our lives. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would always search our own hearts, search our hearts, whether we be in the faith. Be not blind to this, dear Lord, but be wise, but be open in our own hearts that we would sorrow not even as others that have no hope. I ask and pray, dear Lord, that you would give us wisdom in this. We thank you, dear Father, in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.